Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, Americans eat a lot of chicken. How much? The National Chicken Council reports per capita consumption of 91 pounds a year in 2016. Compare that to 28 pounds a year in 1960. In her new book, Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats, author Marin McKenna details the history of how chicken became America's most consumed meat and a sometimes hazardous source of health concerns. Marin McKenna is an investigative journalist with expertise in public health and food policy. Her other books include Superbug, The Fatal Menace of MRSA, and Beating Back the Devil. She spoke at Pioneer Square's Impact Hub on January 23rd. Town Hall Seattle presented this Inside Out event as part of their science series. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Just a couple words in the second half. Here, Town Hall Seattle's Edward Wolcher introduces Marin McKenna. Marin McKenna is an independent journalist and author who specializes in public health, global health, and food policy. She is a contributor at National Geographic, where she also helped launch the award-winning food site The Plate, and a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis University. She received the 2014 Leadership Award from the Alliance for the Prudent Use of Antibiotics, which I think is a really cool organization name, and the 2013 Byron H. Waxman Award for Excellence in the Public Communication of Life Sciences. McKenna is the author of 2010's Superbug and 2004's Beating Back the Devil, both winners of many awards. Her latest book is Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. And it is the subject of tonight's talk. I hope people in the room had a nice, healthy, chickenless dinner before coming here, because if not, get ready. Uh, and please join me in welcoming Marin McKenna. <laughs> Thank you, Edward, for that introduction, and thanks to Amanda for helping organize to Town Hall Seattle for having me, and especially to the, um, the Northwest Science Writers Association. My clack are here. <laughs> Thank you so much. I am thrilled to have the chance to talk to you about this story that has obsessed me for the past four years of my life. <clears throat> In honor of being in Seattle, I not only am, you may have heard I come from Atlanta where um, we tend not to wear so many natural fibers or flats. Um, so in addition to trying to dress in Seattle drag, I have allowed the Seattle weather to colonize my throat. And so I'm gonna be mainlining cough drops the entire time I'm talking. I apologize for that in advance. On Christmas day, 1948, a scientist walked into his laboratory outside New York City to check the results of an experiment. What he found that day changed history. He created the global system by which we raise meat animals for our consumption. And though he didn't know it at the time, he also created the conditions for a profound human health threat that would sweep the world. We are still grappling with the results of his discovery, which was that if you give tiny doses of antibiotics to meat animals, you can speed their growth and raise them in conditions that otherwise would not be good for them. And we are also dealing with what flowed from that discovery, which was the, a global undermining of the power of antibiotics in a worldwide epidemic of drug-resistant infections. So this is that scientist. Uh, his name is Thomas Jukes. He was a Brit who emigrated to the United States and became an expert in the dietary needs of chicken. Um, he worked for a pharmaceutical firm just outside New York City. And in 1948, he created this experiment to find a dietary supplement that would allow farmers to feed cheaper, less nutritious feed to their animals. So what he did was he took a bunch of just hatched chicks, he divided them up, and he gave each group of chicks a different supplement. Crystalline vitamins, brewer's yeast, cod liver oil, and to one group, 
the dried, ground-up remains of a drug that his company had just begun making, the, a, a drug called oreomycin, the first of the tetracycline class of antibiotics. And when he weighed the chicks a few weeks later, on Christmas Day 1948, he did it himself because he'd given his lab assistant the day off for the holiday, he discovered that the birds that had gotten the antibiotic leftovers weighed more than any other birds in the experiment. They'd gained twice as much weight as the birds that had gotten the standard diet. Jukes called this effect growth promotion, and he realized pretty quickly, though he didn't admit to it at first, that what was creating the effect was tiny doses of his company's antibiotic left behind when the drug had been strained out from the carbohydrate mass it had been grown in. With that recognition, he created a new industry. In just five years, the amount of antibiotics that farmers in the United States were giving their animals went from zero to 500,000 pounds a year. And today, just in the United States, the total is more than 30 million pounds. And globally, it's believed to be 262 million pounds of antibiotics. On a global average, at least twice as many antibiotics going into animals as are used in people. And this is important. Almost none of those animals are sick. The antibiotics are given to animals, as Jukes found in 1948, to speed their growth and to allow them to be held in the close conditions of the factory farms that grew up from his discovery. That's important because whenever we use an antibiotic, we are taking a risk that disease bacteria will adapt to the drug and become resistant, which is to say, to adapt to protect themselves against the drug's attack and to survive when they otherwise would have been killed by the antibiotic. When we give an antibiotic to a sick human or a sick animal, we're balancing that risk against the benefit of curing an infection. But when we give antibiotics to animals that are not sick, there is no benefit. The equation flips entirely over to risk, and that's what we do when, as Jukes found out, we give antibiotics routinely to the animals that provide the protein that we eat. So I am fascinated by how we got to this point. Millions and millions of pounds of antibiotics a year going into animals for reasons other than the reasons why we accept we should use antibiotics. And I went on a journey to, found, to find out how we got to this point, and it turns out the journey goes back to the end of World War II, which happens also to be the beginning of the antibiotic era. All of the drugs that we think of as the first antibiotics, starting with penicillin, streptomycin, chloramphenicol, the tetracyclines, they all arrive between 1943, when penicillin is rolled out on the battlefields of Europe, and about 1948, when Jukes' employer, Letterly Laboratories, proposes the patent for oreomycin. Antibiotics are a sensation. I think it's hard because we were all born within the antibiotic era to understand the impact that they had. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers and sailors who would have died on the battlefields of World War II come home instead because of the miraculous power of penicillin. People who would have died terrible, lingering deaths from infectious diseases are cured instead in days, sometimes in hours. So antibiotics are a huge public good, and for most of their manufacturers, they are a huge moneymaker as well. And manufacturers' desire to make one more dose of profit out of these new miracle drugs happens to dovetail very neatly with something else that's going on at the end of the war. And that is the war's effect on meat production. So think of those hundreds of thousands, millions of soldiers and sailors deployed around the world. They all need to be fed, and to feed them, governments encourage meat production to scale up to add infrastructure. As soon as the war is over, that guaranteed market goes away, and meat production is suddenly 
confronted with the need somehow to cut costs to keep the entire industry from collapsing. At the same time, there's a profound sense that the entire food production system is fragile. Arable land had been destroyed by battles, flocks and herds had been decimated, fishing vessels had been co-opted by navies that needed extra fleets. There were famines and crop failures in Europe and in Asia. And here in the United States, there was what they called a meat famine, so profound that it became part of the campaigning for the 1946 election, the first election after the war. So to solve these problems and to keep the meat production system viable, manufacturers had to find a way to cut their costs. They turned to giving their animals cheaper feed, which was less nutritious, and then they needed to find cheap supplements to fix the problem of the feed being less nutritious. And that search is what sent Jukes into his laboratory on that Christmas day in 1948 and what spurred the enormous use of antibiotics almost immediately after his discovery and up to today. And I find this extraordinary because just a few years before, Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin, the parent of all the antibiotics that come after, warned that it would be a mistake to use his, these miracle drugs casually. <clears throat> When he accepted the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1945, three years before Jukes's experiment, Fleming warned that underdosing with antibiotics, using tiny doses of antibiotics, would create bacteria that could protect themselves against antibiotics attack. Now, Fleming was talking about people taking low doses of antibiotics, not animals, but what he was describing was exactly what Jukes would do. And it is extraordinary to me to imagine that this speech, which was published around the world, was not something that Jukes was, <clears throat> was knowledgeable of. Excuse me. Fleming was right. By 1947, two years after he says this, penicillin-resistant staff, which has never before existed in the world, starts to move through hospitals around the globe, first in England, then in Australia, it comes to the United States here in Seattle and cre creates a massive outbreak at Harborview in 1957. All of those epidemics are front-page front news in the countries where they occur. But no one seems to have considered that the same processes that caused resistance in bacteria in hospitals would have the same effect on bacteria in animals on farms. In fact, Jukes's growth promoters <clears throat> become completely routine in farming. They're approved by the FDA in 1951 and 1953. You may not be able to see this because this is smaller than I planned, but it's an ad from the drug company Merck. And it says, science, uh, science helps farmers bring junior, juicier drumsticks. And it goes on and on and on about penicillin and its effect on chicken. Um, so after growth promoters, not very long after, larger doses of antibiotics, preventive doses of antibiotics, but still smaller than would be used to cure an infection, also become routine as well. And this is a mistake because the situation that Fleming predicted in medicine begins to occur in agriculture as well. Antibiotic-resistant, foodborne illness, a thing that has never before existed in the world, begins to occur. The first signs of trouble are actually in dairy production. Uh, children who naturally drink much more milk than adults do start to develop penicillin allergies, even though they've never been given the drug. And then cheesemakers start to complain that they can't make cheese anymore because there's so much penicillin in the milk that they're receiving that it kills the beneficial bacteria they use to turn milk into cheese. After that, there's a, an outbreak of drug-resistant salmonella that stretches across the entire southern coast of England among people who have no family or municipal or school relationship to each other, more than 100 people sick, and six of them die. 
and then a few years later, <clears throat> drug-resistant E. coli attacks one town in Yorkshire in England and kills 13 of that small town's children. And that last outbreak is so shocking that the English government becomes the first government in the world to put any kind of controls on farm antibiotic use. In 1969, they put together a commission. It comes to be known as the Swan Commission after its chairman, Michael Swan. They study for two years up and down the country. They write a report, and two years after that, that report is voted into law by parliament. They say that growth promoters should be banned, that this is a mistake that needs to be reversed, and any antibiotic that is significant for human medicine should not be used in a farm animal. It becomes law, it creates a worldwide precedent, and attention turns to the United States, the home of growth promoters, to see what we will do. And this scientist, who I think some people in the audience probably know, <laughs> um, enters the picture. His name is Stuart Levy. He was then and is still now faculty at Tufts University outside Boston. And he takes on the responsibility of proving scientifically what is going on with this generation of drug-resistant bacteria on farms. He sets up an experimental farm. He buys a bunch of chickens. He locks them up in pens in a barn so they can't get to each other. And then he goes to the feed store and he buys some feed that contains antibiotics and some feed that is clean. He hires a farm family to run this experiment for him. Within a couple of months of one pen of chickens receiving the drug-laced feed, drug-resistant bacteria appear first in those chickens, then in the chickens at the other end of the barn that they've had no contact with, and finally in the farm family themselves. So Levy's proved two things. First, he proves that routine antibiotic doses, ones too small to cure an infection, affect the gut bacteria of the animals that are receiving the drugs. That solves the mystery of why antibiotic-resistant foodborne illness is happening, because those gut contents are splashing onto the meat that the animals become when they are slaughtered, and traveling with that meat into kitchens and onto plates. But he also proves something that people should have thought about long before, which is that the bacteria in those gut contents, that is the animal's manure, is also contaminating farm environments, is moving into the farm environment, depositing drug-resistant bacteria, that then move through the world in a manner that is unpredictable and untrackable. And his discovery prompts the US government to try to follow England, to try to control farm antibiotic use. And the US is not so successful. Uh, the, the FDA commissioner of a brand new administration, it's actually the Carter administration, who bring an entire crew of earnest young reformers to Washington. This commissioner attempts to take away the licenses that the FDA has given 20 years earlier for growth promoters and preventive use. And a couple of congressmen who are beholden to agricultural interests, step in and tell the White House that if this goes ahead, they will hold hostage the entire budget of the FDA. And the White House forces their FDA commissioner to back down. Antibiotic control in the United States enters a stalemate <clears throat> that lasts a full 40 years. And at that point, the United States and Britain and the rest of Europe diverge in what they're going to do about farm antibiotic use, presenting essentially two models for the rest of the world to follow. In Europe, things are banned, first in England, then in the Scandinavian countries in the 1980s, then in the entire European Union, partially in 1999, fully in 2006. In the US, we decide to be empirical, and we wait to see what kind of antibiotic-resistant bacteria and what kind of outbreaks are going to occur. And, of course, they do. In 1987, hundreds of people fall ill in California after eating ground beef from exhausted dairy cattle.
who have been dosed with a powerful antibiotic called chloramphenicol to keep them going a few more rounds. Across the 1990s, thousands of Americans develop infections from salmonella that is resistant to a powerful category of drugs called fluoroquinolones, which means that when people go to the doctor, they can't be treated with that, for that infection with the first drug that a doctor would reach for, which is the fluoroquinolone antibiotic that we all know as Cipro. Starting in 2001, researchers in California and Minnesota demonstrate that some portion, possibly 10%, of the millions of urinary tract infections that affect women in the United States and around the world every year, which in some cases escalate to kidney infections, to bloodstream infections, and even to death from septic shock, are due to resistant bacteria traveling on meat. And across all that time, researchers in different parts of the US demonstrate time and time again that resistant bacteria are moving away from farms in groundwater, in surface water, in dust on the wind, on the feet of rodents and insects, and even on the skin and clothing of farm workers, and affecting people who live near large farms, whether they actually have a connection to the farms or not. These outbreaks are not confined to the United States. <clears throat> in 2004, the Netherlands faces the rapid spread of a form of staph bacteria that's become resistant to tetracycline. Tetracycline isn't used for staph in humans in the Netherlands. It's given to pigs. And the infection moves from pigs to pig farmers to their families into the wider society, creates such a dramatic outbreak in Dutch healthcare that the government decrees that if you are a pig farmer and you are going to the hospital, you will be compelled to be placed into isolation as soon as you enter the doors until it can be proven you're not a risk to the rest of the patients. In 2015, Chinese and British researchers discover a, very, a gene conferring resistance to the very last resort outbreak out there, antibiotic out there, an antibiotic called colistin, a survivor from the 1950s. This gene is in bacteria that's found simultaneously in people, in retail pork, and in pigs. And it has, since that discovery just three years ago, moved around the world, causing infections in more than 30 countries, including the United States. <clears throat> While these epidemics are happening, one other thing is occurring behind the scenes. It's possible that as a society, we didn't take antibiotic resistance flowing from farms seriously for as long as we let it go, because however bad it seemed to us antibiotic resistance might get, there was always another drug that we could use to counter the effects of the ones that we had lost. That is no longer the case. Pharma companies have, for the most part, stopped making antibiotics because they no longer see them as profitable. It can take 10 years and more than a billion dollars to produce a new drug, but most antibiotics don't have very high prices, and most of them aren't taken for that long, and the development of resistance can cut into a drug's profits before those research costs are recouped. So, in the endless game of leapfrog between bugs and drugs, the bugs are leaping ahead. The drugs are falling behind. Routine antibiotic use in the animals that deliver our protein <clears throat> is contributing to a worldwide epidemic of antibiotic-resistant bacteria that we don't take seriously enough. It's been estimated that right now, the toll of drug-resistant infections around the world is 23,000 deaths a year here in the U.S., 25,000 in Western Europe, possibly 700,000 deaths a year. And if trends are not changed by 2050, the death toll will be 10 million people a year and a loss to the world of $100 trillion in productivity. Now, those are kind of abstract numbers, so let me make them real for you. I arrived early this morning on a plane that held about 300 people. 700,000 deaths a year is one of those planes crashing and killing everyone on board every six hours, every day, all around the year. 10 million deaths a year, 
is one plane crash every 15 minutes. Or, put another way, one death every three seconds all around the world. Whether we realize it or not, by our overindulgence in antibiotics, <clears throat> we have brought ourselves to the brink of a post-antibiotic world, which is a world in which we lose most of what we trust in modern medicine and also most of the confidence with which we live our everyday lives. If we lost antibiotics, the first thing we would lose is any protection for people with diminished immune systems. That's cancer patients, AIDS patients, premature babies, recipients of organ transplants. We would lose treatments that we trust that install foreign objects in the body, like stents for stroke or pumps to deliver insulin for diabetes. We'd lose most surgeries. <clears throat> we don't remember this, but strep throat used to cause heart failure. Pneumonia killed three children out of every 10. Giving birth killed in the cleanest hospitals, nine women out of every thousand, often many more. A scratch could result in an amputation. Think about this. If you knew that even a minor injury could mean your life, how would you change your life? Would you climb a ladder to hang your Christmas lights? Ride a motorcycle? Bomb down a ski slope? Let your kids slide into home plate. Those are the things that are threatened by our overindulgence in antibiotics. In medicine, for sure, but in, in agriculture, even more so. And though the origin of problematic antibiotic use is land-based protein, chicken, cattle, hogs, what is true on land is true for the seas as well. In many parts of the world, aquaculture, both for finfish and for shrimp, depends heavily on antibiotics. I just came back from Chile, where the salmon industry is struggling with its reliance on antibiotics, which is causing it to lose international reputation, and also massive international contracts. Costco has just switched from Chilean salmon to Norwegian, because Norwegian salmon uses much less antibiotics. And I know this will resonate with you because of aquaculture just across the border in British Columbia. That industry is dependent on antibiotics. Most large-scale production of protein is. And that is a danger that we all must deal with because large-scale production of protein is growing around the world. As the economies of emerging nations improve, it is predictable and natural for their new middle classes to want to spend their new incomes on meat. It is natural for those, those countries to turn to intensive livestock farming and to turn to antibiotics to support them unless they can be shown a different way. Most of the global south has not yet set curbs on antibiotic use. Brazil, for instance, is now the world's largest exporter of chicken and one of the largest users of antibiotics in agriculture. China is already the largest user of antibiotics, and it has been predicted by one set of economists that if China does not change its use, by the year 2030, it will be giving 30% of all the, the antibiotics manufactured in the world to its livestock. So, the questions I ask myself are, <clears throat> for the good of the world, can very large protein producers change their habits? And can governments find the political will to make a statement that this much must change? And here is where I actually show you what might be the happy ending. In 2014, the chicken company Purdue Farms, which is the fourth largest chicken company in the United States, shocked the entire rest of its industry, profoundly annoying them, by announcing it was going to take its chicken antibiotic free. Four years later, they are 99% antibiotic-free, and behind them have come Tyson and Cargill and Pilgrim's Pride and Foster Farms, and Chick-fil-A and Subway and Taco Bell and McDonald's, all using only antibiotic-free poultry. 
in 2016, the central government of China, which was alarmed by those reports of drug-resistant bacteria, highly resistant bacteria, spreading around the world with a clear tie back to China's agriculture, banned that important last resort drug, which is called Colistin, and took 8,000 tons of it out of the use of its farmers. And in January last year, in one of its last actions in office, the Obama administration finally engineered the removal of growth promoters from the American farm market, breaking that four-decade-long stalemate that was created between Congress and the industry in 1977. I think those are really encouraging moves. I think it is critical that they be followed up. At this point, there are only a handful of countries in the world that have gone beyond growth promoter bans to actually control preventive use as well. And most countries, including here in the United States, continue to allow the use of antibiotics in animals that are not sick to protect them against the conditions that they are grown in. Just last fall, the World Health Organization asked governments around the world to stop doing that, to sacrifice preventive use of antibiotics. And among the governments that said no was ours. The Trump administration said they chose not to control preventive antibiotic use. And meanwhile, for much of the world, the need for inexpensive protein far outweighs the potential threat of deaths from antibiotic resistance. But this is a problem that will not go away. The movement of resistant bacteria across the world shows us that we can no longer pretend that one country or one ecosystem is separate from another. Foods are flown across the world. Pathogens cross borders on birds, on the wind, in the oceans, and in our bodies. The, the great microbiologist Joshua Letterberg once said, there is nowhere in the world from which we are remote. And I fear that for the overuse of antibiotics, we have not yet learned that lesson. I think we do not have much time left to get it right. Thank you very much. We have some time for questions. And again, we'd ask uh, you to come up to the microphone. <coughs> we are taking an audio recording. So if you have a question, you can line up along this side. This is the point at which you shake off your terror. Yeah. <laughs> and come and ask me a question. Hello. Hi. Can people hear me? Hi, I'm Guy. Thank you for your talk. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering how all of this relates to Silent Spring, and if you would say this might be our generation's Silent Spring in a way. So thank you for the question. Um, so Thomas Jukes, the guy who started all of this, despised Rachel Carson. He actually wrote um, a parody of Silent Spring that was published in a scientific journal. Um, and to, to the end of his life, he insisted that she was wrong and he was right and there was no downside to his invention. Um, I think your perception that this is as important as, as, as important a situation as the one described in Silent Spring is exactly right. But I also think I really do believe this, that there is a, uh, a public movement rising, a consumer movement growing, that may have as much power to change this as the nascent environmental movement did when it was inspired by Silent Spring. The reason that the Obama administration was able, felt safe in changing those regulations, and the reason that Purdue and Chick-fil-A and McDonald's all felt it was safe to change their practices and their buying, was because they already knew a consumer movement was waiting for them. Starting in about 2010, very large healthcare systems um, led by UCSF uh, said to meat production that they no longer wanted to spend their institutional catering budgets on meat raised with routine antibiotic use. And a couple of years later, they were joined by very large school systems led by the Chicago Public Schools, which is the third largest system in the country. And on top of healthcare and on top of schools came chefs and farmers and moms and the members of families who had um, 
drug, victims of drug resistance within them. And all of that buying power together said to the companies that if you change your practices, we will be waiting here with our food dollars. So I think, um, I think the same kind of movement that you're referring to that rose after Silent Spring, I think that is possible here, um, so long as we keep the pressure up. Thank you. Uh, Jukes, Thomas Jukes. Um, the, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Um, Thomas H. Jukes, J-U-K-E-S. Um, and the, the uh, parody he wrote of her is actually one of the footnotes in the book. <laughs> so now you have to buy the book. <laughs> Hi. Hello. Uh, my name's Isaac Emery. I'm an environmental scientist actually at the Good Food Institute. Who <gasps> Hello. Might be a good uh, place for you to get in touch with. Um, we help solve problems like this, hopefully. Um, and I'm wondering if you could clarify, I kind of, I'm not, I'm unclear on, especially with the recent changes here in the United States, but also in Europe <coughs> and worldwide, what the difference is between banning, or what's happening in, in sort of the corporate ag world between banning growth promoters or stopping mm -hmm. to use growth promoters and this preventative antibiotic right. use. So, um, you know, I can we can think of antibiotic use in animals on a spectrum at which the smallest dose is growth promoters, which is having some effect on the gut microbiome that changes the way that they take up nutrition such that they put on tasty muscle mass faster. And at the other end of the spectrum is um, a fully therapeutic dose that cures an infection. And in the mushy middle are these preventive doses that are larger than growth promoters, smaller than therapeutic doses. Now, it's different for different species. So when the... Um, poultry industry gave up antibiotics, they just kind of gave up all of them. And for the most part, with the exception of one particular parasitic gut disease, they are not using even preventive antibiotics anymore. Um, what the, uh, what, what the, first the European and then the US regulations did was specifically to take out of the market the label claim on drugs for a growth promoter dose. It didn't say anything, however, about, well, maybe uh, the preventive dose also works as a growth promoter, or maybe the growth promoter dose and the preventive dose are effectively the same dose. So there's a significant amount of concern that until preventive dosing is banned as well, and all that's left is actually curing infections in animals, that there will be enough mushiness and wiggle room for antibiotic use in animals to continue in the way it has before. There are about a third of the antibiotics approved for uh, livestock in the United States have effectively no difference in dosing between a growth promoter dose and a preventive dose. They're the, exactly the same numbers. They're just different lines on the label. Thanks for your question. Hi. Hi, my name's Anastasia, and my question here would be, what would be the expected epidemiological negative impact on an abrupt stop to, towards this type of antibiotic <clears throat> use? In the animals, you mean? Yes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the contention for years was we can't stop antibiotic use, even if it's really bad for people in, or, and the environment because the entire structure of agriculture will collapse. I think we know now that's not true because these very large producers have taken out antibiotics and have not changed the, uh, the count of the millions and millions, particularly chickens, since this has gone furthest in chicken, um, of animals they are producing, nor have they had to change their bottom line. Their, their profits have not been affected. It, Purdue is the company that's done the most research that has been made public about the effect. And what they have done in taking antibiotics out is to find other things they can feed to their animals that have an effectively the same sort of sterilizing effect on the gut. So they're giving them thyme and oregano and prebiotics and probiotics and metal salts. And they're also doing things that are in some ways a return to very old farming practices like they're cutting windows in the sides of their barns so that birds can get sunlight on their feathers. and um, allowing them opportunities to exercise so they're, they're getting more perfusion of their muscles. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, a company that is entirely bottom line focused, that is, was not, they didn't do this because they were concerned about antibiotic resistance. They did this because 3,000 customers a month were contacting them and saying, we would like to spend our money on antibiotic-free chicken and it would be cool if you produced it. Um, 
that, that they have continued to go down this road for four years now, actually for more than 10 years if you count from when they first started doing their studies, and have stuck with it, I, I think is an indication that there, is, there just isn't um, a, a negative effect on animal health, and there certainly isn't a negative effect on the balance sheet either. Thank you. My name is Rachel, and I was just hoping to get something clarified. Sure. Uh, a couple times you refer to protein producers, but do you just mean animal protein producers? Because protein. Right, right. Yes, I'm sorry. So I, I'm I was saying protein because if I say meat, then that kind of leaves out like salmon and shrimp and so forth. So protein in the sense of like uh, muscle protein, so flesh, not soybeans. Right. I yeah. didn't think they soybean farmers use antibiotics, but it was just. Not to my knowledge. Uh, the, the herbicides, pesticides, yeah. They, there actually is um, antibiotic use outside of animal production. Um, wine grapes, apples, pears, citrus. Um, the, there's been some, in, in Florida, where they're concerned about citrus greening, there have been some significant, really troubling applications of antibiotics for that. But um, the, the, and, and the effect is more antibiotic-resistant bacteria in the environment, but through a, reaching us through a different route than, than uh, traveling on meat. And so as a follow-up, when you say the demand for cheap protein, it's really that people are wanting cheap meat, not that people are lacking in cheap tofu. Correct. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's, this is interesting. I didn't know this, that one of the most, to an economist, one of the most reliable signals of uh, the improvement in an economy is that people start to buy more meat. We are apparently sufficiently hardwired to want meat as a species that when people get some extra money, if meat's available, they'll buy it. And, and so in India, in China, in Brazil, in all of the developing economies of Southeast Asia, meat, meat consumption is rising. I don't want to hog the microphone, but is that hardwired or is that marketing the drive to buy more animal products when you, in the economy? Oh, um, <laughs> I would say that it's that our... All the vegetarians in the room can disagree with me. My perception is that we are hardwired as a species to want to eat meat, and that when we move beyond eating flesh, it's um, initially because of a moral or ethical impulse that, that manages to overcome our, um, our evolutionary adaptation toward wanting to eat meat. Next. <clears throat> Hi. Hi. Hi, my name is Wudan. I'm a science journalist here. Hi. Hi. Um, I had a question. So if the original impetus was to use antibiotics as a growth promoter mm -hmm. in uh, farm animals, I'm curious why researchers, I mean, maybe they have and I just don't know this, but why wasn't, and, and people became aware of these antibiotic-resistant superbugs, was there were there ever researchers that were just like, oh, we should just be interested in engineering um, growth factors, growth hormones for those animals, rather than using antibiotics, which create the problem of resistance. And if that didn't happen, why not? Did they get competed out because the, the use of antibiotics was so powerful? Mm -hmm. So growth hormones specifically are, they're illegal in poultry. They're used in cattle. And I think in pigs, I'm not sure about that. Um, so one, uh, one confounder to, in this long history is that all of these antibiotics that are being used by the ton, they're super cheap, right? They're, they are, that intellectual property was achieved and um, amortized back in the 1950s. So, you, I mean, I have on my desk at home a two-pound bag of oreomycin. I paid $20 for it, including shipping. You know, and nobody asked me anything except my credit card number. No one even asked me if I was a farmer. That was before the, um, the new rules went into effect Hypothetically, somebody ought to ask my identity now if I tried to do that. So, um, and that was a, that's, that actually is a pretty high price for oreomycin. $20 ought to get you a lot more than two pounds. So, um, any research that would substitute another product for these antibiotics would have to defend the price of its R&D against something that works perfectly well that's extremely inexpensive and was until recently widely available. Now that availability has possibly been cut off, 
maybe more research will be stimulated in the same way that research into other supplements is being stimulated by some of the meat companies that are looking for an alternative. I mean, we can hope so. But farming is a low-margin business. So an expense, you know, and any kind of expensive supplement is really going to have to justify itself within the larger market structure. Thank Thanks for your question. Hello. G'day, Marin. My name, excuse me, my name's David, and I'm a, an Australian. Who's I would never have guessed that. I know. I'm also a professional marketer who specialises in food labelling and packaging, but that's Fantastic. not what my question is about. Um, I love talking about labels. They're bullshit. Okay. <laughs> we, we, we can talk later. But um, I was really shocked that meat and fish and milk is so cheap in this country when I moved here. And I get that there is a market that is <coughs> growing for organic and hormone-free and antibiotic-free, and that might be a tipping point for a lot of companies like McDonald's, etc., as you mm -hmm. mentioned. But if we were to uh, ban a lot of this usage, how much would the cheapest eggs, fish, milk, chicken, etc., go up by? Are we talking a 10% pr price increase or 20 or 30? So in the past couple of years, Purdue hasn't raised its prices. So um, it's possible that, that any excess cost is, is just being, if there is any, you know, thyme and oregano don't cost a lot more than, um, than penicillin and tetracycline do. So it's possible that if there's any excess cost, it's just being absorbed uh, as a kind of, what accountants call it, as a goodwill item on the okay. balance sheet. Um, I mean, the argument can be made, I am happy to make it, that all of the pricing for meat in the United States is, is inappropriately cheap. Oh, yeah. And that if we, uh, I mean, the price of a hamburger in the United States, if you allow for the cost, for cost of living increases and so forth, has not changed in 25 years. Um, and I don't think the, the meat patty's gotten that much smaller. <laughs> but there's an argument to be made that if we forced meat production to account for all of its externalities, for, um, for, for animal welfare, for damage to the environment, for um, natural resource use, you know, the actual, the true cost of meat would rise significantly. That's probably, would probably be a bigger influence on a balance sheet than, um, than, than the other supplements that are being used in the place of antibiotics, but no one has come forward with a reasonable proposal to make meat companies answer for those other external costs. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Hi. Hi. Hi, Marin. Um, I was sitting there wondering <laughs> if antibiotics cause uh, production in birds and mammals and fish. Is are you aware of any research that shows what it might be doing in humans? Thank you for asking that question. So. Um, Yes, I am. <laughs> I am aware of some of that research. Some of the best research on this is um, done uh, in the microbiome lab at NYU by Dr. Martin Blazer and uh, his team, who have attempted to reproduce in mice what low-dose antibiotics do in um, farm animals. And they do get a growth-promoting effect. Now, we humans mostly don't take, like when we take antibiotics, we take therapeutic doses. So the argument against that research that has been made is that the dosing isn't the same in what they're doing to their mice versus what is actually going on to people. And that therefore, the contention that um, antibiotic use is actually creating the obesity epidemic is, um, is a false claim. However, we are most of us um, without knowing it, exposed to low environmental doses of antibiotics. Because when we take an antibiotic or when we give antibiotics to animals, a good proportion of that antibiotic passes through the animal unmetabolized, unbroken down. It is still an active compound and goes into the environment. So there are levels, low levels of antibiotics in ground and surface water, separate from the presence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And it is hypothetically possible, though has not yet been proven in any significant way, this is simply a thought experiment, that that could be exerting an effect equivalent to growth promoters in animals and making us all fat. Thank you, Thank you for asking. I love this. That research is crazy. Hello again. Hello again. Uh, I have a question for the audience, if that's cool with you. Yeah, sure. Uh, how many I, of I think so. Oh, yeah, go ahead. How many of y'all know, know what a CSA is? Raise your hand. 
That's good, about half. How many of y'all use the CSA? Okay, I really, really, really would encourage you to shift your buying power to CSAs. Um, even though meat maybe- Meat CSAs? Uh, talking so, meat here. Well, I mean, I used, to, I used to work for the largest CSA in the world in California called Farm Fresh to You, mm -hmm. and we're just about to use meat. Cool. And we have a branch up here, I'm not trying to promote nothing, but we have a branch up here, and hopefully they'll be using meat as well, I'm not sure. But I generally think CSAs are an amazing thing. Y'all have a bunch of farmer's market stuff on the table. Um, so my question for you is, what role do you see CSAs playing, potentially meet CSAs as CSAs continue to develop? Uh, what role might that play in this movement? So let me broaden that out a little bit. Um, I think the most important thing, if people want to continue to eat meat, um, and I think a significant proportion of the public do, I think the most important thing that people can do is to ask more questions about the meat they're eating. And, and if you are you know, fortunate enough or affluent enough to, to, to use a CSA to buy from a small farmer, um, asking those questions is a lot easier. There's a lot more direct channel of information. But I also think that um, consumers asking questions brought even the very large poultry companies to where we are now. Again, Purdue said that in the year they finally broke down and went antibiotic-free, they were getting 3,000 comments a month from their consumers through Facebook and email and social media and old-fashioned phone calls and so forth. Um, so the more I think that people, even people who just shop in supermarkets, you know, go to the butcher counter, go to the, to the customer service desk and say, I want to know more about where you're buying your chicken. Um, or your beef or your pork, what are the conditions, who are the farmers, who are the wholesalers, what can you tell me about what the, the growing conditions of this food are? Um, the more people ask those questions, the more the market will feel pressure to change. Thanks. Hello. I, I appreciate, um, I just want to say first, I appreciate your optimism, and at the same time, um, this is this horrifying and chilling. Um, that's me. And, and in that context, um, it would be helpful for me to hear what you think the, um, the smartest defenders of the industry status quo, what is their argument and how do you, how do you respond to it? Um, <clears throat> so uh, in 2009, 20 uh, production sector organizations and essentially lobbying organizations, the American Meat Institute, the National Pork Producers Council, um, the National Chicken Council, Cattlemen's Association, sent a letter to uh, the Obama administration's Office of Science and Technology Policy, in which they said, um, we see no effect from, they, they'd gotten wind that the Obama administration was maybe going to do something about farm antibiotic use. And they said, we see no reason why this should change. We know of no solid evidence that there is any effect. And if you know anything about public health, that language will sound familiar. Because it's the exact same language that the tobacco companies used for generations. No clear effect, more research needed. I think it's actually in some papers and textbooks as the tobacco playbook. And for a long time, the antibiotic playbook was the same as the tobacco playbook and was exactly as sincere. <laughs> so so um, those may not be the smartest defenders, but those were the loudest defenders. I don't actually know, with, with one exception, there's, there's one, one poultry company that's holding out they're based in, I think, Texas. Their name is Sanderson Farms. They're very large. They're one of the largest poultry companies in the country. Um, and they have been running elaborate TV, and, TV ads and ads on YouTube that explicitly call going antibiotic-free a gimmick. Um, and uh, they just finally, it looks like they're about to cave. Um, they had a, a, a dissenting shareholders vote in the last annual meeting. They've just filed uh, paperwork with, uh, I don't know, maybe it's USDA, um, suggesting that they could potentially go antibiotic-free. Um, where I think most of the industry is now is not, because, it's, because most of the movement has been in poultry, because poultry in some sense is easy. Um, 
We only allow chickens to live 42 days in the United States, meat chickens, on average. They arrive in their barn sometime between day one and day three of life, and they don't leave that barn until the night they're plucked out, no pun intended, to, um, uh, to be slaughtered. Pigs and cattle move around during their lives, either to different barns on the same property or to different properties entirely. They are therefore naturally more exposed to pathogens, and they just live longer, so they're more likely to develop diseases. So understanding that pigs and cows are harder I think that the industry, the meat industry as a whole, understands that this is where consumers want to go. And what they are saying at this point is not, we are going to stand on principle and not do this because we think it's wrong. They're saying, we just don't know how to do it yet. Um, and that is an incredibly significant advance from where we were, you know, eight years ago at the beginning of the Obama administration when producers, the, the organizations representing producers were saying, no, we're just not gonna. <laughs> no one's saying that anymore. Hi. Hi, my name's Julie. Um, you said it during your um, presentation that the current administration said no, it was not going to put in any regulations around um, any further regulation, any right? regulations. Yeah. Yes. Um, at the local level, though, if you start at the city, county, mm -hmm. stuff like that, especially the fact that the antibiotics are leaking into our environment, do we have um, the ability to put in regulations at that level? Yeah. yeah or that's a great are question. they are they um, um, overseen by the FDA, and the FDA comes in and says, "No, this is a federal." Mm -mm. Um, no, that's an excellent question. There already is legislation in some cities, Chicago and San Francisco, I think, maybe a few more, um, and in, uh, and statewide legislation in California and Maryland, this, the legislative fight is being led by the, um, the advocacy group US PERG, and they have, they treated California and Maryland as model legislation, got it passed there, and now are, are pushing statewide legislation and about a half dozen other, maybe Massachusetts is their next target. So yeah, I mean, an advocacy group like that clearly believes that that can have an effect, that, that, that local sovereignty can make this happen even if national federal change cannot. Hello. Thank you very much for your talk and I hope it's all right that I have two questions. I hope I'm not cheating. Um, is this okay? Two questions. Okay, but the first question is, um, it was that I was very intrigued to hear that England and then the Scandinavian countries and then the European Union as a whole, eventually all mm -hmm. of those places um, said no to antibiotics in their, in their poultry, in their mm -hmm. meat. Um, is it too soon to say whether there have been significant differences in the foodborne illness that you see in those places compared to the Yeah, US that's a great or, question. Or is there time? And then the second question is about um, foodborne illness and produce. And mm -hmm. obviously, you know, animals are bred near where vegetables and fruits right. are grown. And if you could just comment on that as well. Sure. So um, the answer to the data question is, uh, is there is some good data. It depends on uh, a, a, a jurisdiction, a government, having good data already, you know, having already having good data collection. So, and the places that have the best, which is looking for resistant, tracking resistant bacteria simultaneously uh, in patients and in animals, are um, Sweden, Norway, and the Netherlands, and Denmark. Um, not coincidentally, those are also places that have single payer health system, you know, government-funded health systems where um, all of the members of the society to some degree participate in one health system and, and have a singular ID and can be tracked easily. Um, the, the place that it probably has the most dramatic data, I would say, is the Netherlands because the Netherlands has gone further than almost anywhere else. Like um, the rest of the European Union, the Netherlands went along with the 2006 full ban on growth promoters, in part because of the influence of that 2004 outbreak of pig MRSA across the country, which was very shocking to them. And then in about 2008, they noticed that they were still having a lot of resistant bacteria affecting people that appeared to be bacteria that, were, um, that would have been traveling on meat. Uh, and so they took a second look at their antibiotic sales data and discovered that though 
growth promoters had gone, it's a very dramatic graph, I wish I have a slide of it somewhere, but not in this presentation, um, from uh, two, I think it went from 1998 to 2008 is the way they did the data. So 98 would have been before the first partial ban and growth promoters go down and down and down and down and down to zero in 2006 when the second ban comes in. But the top line of the graph doesn't change at all. What, what happened was just that they, they changed the name of, the, the companies changed the name of what they were selling from growth promotion antibiotics to preventive antibiotics. So the Netherlands said, yeah, this isn't working because we clearly have more uh, resistant bacteria in our meat and our people are getting sick. So their Ministry of Agriculture and Ministry of Public Health pulled together all the major production organizations, the equivalent of the Cattlemen's Council and the Pork Council and so forth. And they worked out a cooperative agreement to re voluntarily reduce antibiotic use further, starting in 2010. And by, 2000, tw by 2013, they had taken 50% of, the, they'd reduced their antibiotic use by 50%, and now they're up to more than 60%. So that's how much sort of like excess unneeded antibiotic use was washing around in the system. And their tracking systems for resistant bacteria already four years later show that resistant bacteria of certain types like E. coli start to trend down in the animals. And then about, with about a three-year lag, they start to trend down in humans too. Remind me of your second question. Mm, produce, thank you very much. Right, so the problem with, um, you know, the, prob the, 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 the shock of Levy's um, finding back in 76 was that it's not only meat that is the vehicle for resistant bacteria, that they can, can flow through the environment and also not just the bacteria themselves, but bacteria can, as they die, can release the resistance DNA, um, the DNA that, can, that confers resistance, which can then be picked up by other bacteria and can stack up in bacteria to make them multi-drug resistant. So um, I don't think being a, veg a vegetarian unfortunately protects you. Um, because those bacteria are present in the environment, because they may be picked up by other animals. You know, there was a massive um, uh, drug-resistant foodborne illness outbreak in California a few years ago in baby spinach, I think it was, and it was because of contamination by, um, by wild animals, by, um, I think, wild peer, deer or pigs or some deer. Okay, um, so, uh, so, so, so only eating vegetables is, isn't good enough because the, the resistant bacteria are still out there and, and, um, and we need to get them out of all realms, not just out of meat. Thank you. How are we doing, Amanda? Okay. Hi. Are you oh. in line again? Dude. All right, go. Yeah, my, yeah finally it's my turn. Uh, I have a question about labeling here because having, having just moved here, I realized that a lot of Chicken here have like no antibiotic and no hormone, where, whereas in the UK you don't really see that. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, how, is there any regulation out around those labeling? Because you know, organic and cage-free, those terms are a bit loosely used for the labels. So no hormone, no. So antibiotic. this is complicated. Yeah. Um, thank you for your question. I think I said labels are bullshit a little while ago. I'm pretty sure I said that. Um, so. It is fascinating to me that if you went to any supermarket in the United States and picked up a package of chicken, among the claims you would see on the label are no cages, no hormones. This is true. It is also irrelevant because it is illegal to raise a meat chicken in a cage in the United States. And it is illegal to give hormones to poultry. But some bright boy chicken producer thought, oh, well, since we don't do it, we might as well put it on a label. And now everyone puts it on the label, because if they took it off the label, then someone would say, well, so you're saying you use hormones then? You know, it's like saying raised under a blue sky. It is both accurate and not something they get any particular um, credit for. So that being said, um, organic is a, is a, is a certification. Um, and, and so there are standards that in order to claim organic, um, a meat producer has to live up to that, and they're very specific. They're so specific, in fact, that for poultry, the organic standard starts on day two of the chicken's life. So an organic chicken is not necessarily an antibiotic-free chicken, because it may have gotten antibiotics in the shell or on day one. 
that's to cover the to protect them in the days of transport to an organic farm. Uh, no antibiotics ever or raised without antibiotics are actually label claims that are policed by the government. Um, though they're not necessarily very policed, a farm may just be visited once, um, not continuously, in order to earn the USDA process verified label. But there's a lot of other claims like natural and healthy that um, essentially mean nothing, but they look really, really pretty on a label. <laughs> Thank you. Hello okay, again. this is your last chance. It's my, okay, it's my last question. I promise. All right. um, yes, I eat so, chicken. Me too. Uh, so as you said, um, access to CSAs is a privilege. For certain communities, access to grocery stores is a privilege. I'm sure you're familiar with food deserts. Yes, yes. Um, and I imagine that people who have these limited food options, just have liquor stores, or liquor stores, corner stores, and fast food restaurants to supply their needs, mm -hmm. and these communities are disproportionately communities of color, that the impact of all this antibiotics in all of these meat products is disproportionately affecting communities of color. Would you say that's I true? I think that's a fair analysis, yes. Okay. Yeah, because, um, you know, along with belonging to, uh, having to live in a food desert, along with having um, uh, lesser access to buying options, those tend to track with not having a very large household budget and wanting to spend as little of your household budget as possible on food. Therefore, you're going to look for the, the least expensive options. And mass-produced protein is inexpensive. Unfairly inexpensive, inappropriately inexpensive possibly, as we talked about, but it's inexpensive. Therefore, the, you know, the more that a, a household or family is likely to eat from some, you know, a, a company that that has not yet converted to antibiotic-free and is, is um, you know, raising millions and millions and millions of animals rather than from the pretty green farm at the other end of the state, I would say it's fair to, to say that the, the more likely they are to be at risk of drug-resistant infections or exposure to resistant bacteria as a result. And that is the thing we should change. Thank you for your question. On that note, one more round of applause for Mary McKenna. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Marin McKenna spoke at Pioneer Square's Impact Hub on January 23rd. Town Hall Seattle presented this Inside Out event as part of their science series. Stay current with us by subscribing to our podcast wherever you get that podcast. Tune in again soon. <laughs>